Well, good morning. Welcome to Perspectives from WFSU Public Media. I'm Tom Flanagan. As we say, you are always welcome to be part of the conversation at 850-414-1234. And you can also avail yourself of email, perspectives at wfsu.org. Well, it is not Thursday. And uh, that is when we usually have perspectives. And the reason that we haven't been before we get into today's show is by way of a little explanatory program information here. This special edition of Perspectives is uh, kind of an anomaly. It's an outlier because we are in the process right now of reimagining the future of the program, and we hope to roll out the results of that process shortly after the first of the year. So for those who were wondering, well, gee, how come we don't hear it on Thursday anymore? It, it is not on permanent hiatus. It's just being rethought, and we'll clue you in as soon as that uh, is completed, and we'll kick off something brand new in just a little bit. Now, on to the reason that we are doing this program today. For almost the entire past year, WFSU Public Media has been working on what is likely the most involved and we believe consequential project in our memory for sure. It's called Not So Black and White, and it focuses on racial relations in Tallahassee. The series of podcasts, the first of which will be going online on WFSU.org this Thursday, we'll cover a lot of ground. And so to talk about that ground, to give you kind of a little preview, maybe a spoiler alert or two uh, entrenched in, uh, in the proceedings, we have some of the folks who helped in the production and the editing and the fact-checking and the advising and more than a little bit of hand-holding throughout this whole project here. So let's go around the table, meet everybody, and we'll get into a discussion of what this whole thing is all about. Dr. Reginald Ellis, Interim Dean for the School of Graduate Studies and Research at Florida A&M University, a historian par excellence. He joins us right here. And Dr. Ellis, good to see you. Oh, good morning. I have to update the title. No longer Interim Dean, back as Assistant Dean, uh, Associate Professor of History, and excited to be here and uh, proud of this project. That is wonderful, sir. Again, congratulations and thank you for all your help on that. Of course, we could not have a party without inviting the executive director of the Greater Frenchtown Revitalization Council and a proud native of the Smoky Hollow neighborhood, and that is Maisha Mitchell. Good to see you yes, again, Maisha. Yes, good morning. I'm happy to be here. Absolutely. This is a wonderful occasion. Thank you for inviting me. And thank you for coming and, uh, and joining another partner here in the editing process, and that is uh, Tallahassee Community College history professor Andrea Oliver. We have been throwing papers at you right and left, and thank you for keeping up with the deluge, ma'am. Yes, thank you very much. I feel very honored to be a, a, amongst such august company and, a, and to be a part of this process. Well, thank you. Th- thank you so much. And uh, and we welcome back to this room Talithia Edwards. We have not seen you since, lo, the pandemic came and kind of interrupted everybody's lives. But it is wonderful to see you face to face. And you brought your kind of executive assistant there with <laughs> you, right? Yes, Tom. Thanks for having me. Excited about this conversation. And I got a little partner today. You know, he's teething. So he's Aww. rolling with me today. There we go. That sounds great. Talithia, by the way, Housing Leadership Council, Tallahassee and Community Liaison Leon County Health Department. You have more 
I think, titles and honorariums than I can, you know, even put on this ream of paper over here. So thank you for coming and joining us here. Well, let's let's get started here on this whole process because we have initially a series of five podcasts that we're doing, some of which are going to be pretty darn lengthy, uh, getting up to around a half hour, maybe even 40 minutes in some cases, covering things like neighborhood divisions and changes, black land, loss and the growing of food, uh, the keepers of history. And maybe we could start... Uh, Dr. Reggie, with you on on that one there, the idea being that those who, you know, kind of win the war, write the history and all that. And that has seemed to be part and parcel of what we have seen with our racial history here in Tallahassee. You get multiple viewpoints of this. Oh, yeah. Just going through this process and uh, hearing the different stories of our neighbors here in Tallahassee tell and share their history, what you understand as a historian is that the history has always been there, just hasn't necessarily been told. And so the exciting uh, piece about uh, this upcoming podcast is that you're going to hear the history from the people and not necessarily just from the, uh, the historians, but from the community themselves. And I think that WFSU and as a board member of the Florida Humanities Council, I'll be remiss if I didn't um, commend WFSU for taking on this uh, August project um, to really continue to share the humanities throughout not only the city of Tallahassee, but also the region. And so getting back to your earlier point, I think that, you know, uh, you know, there's a there there are these age old adages that you know, um, you know if if you don't necessarily appreciate the concept of oral history and the power of oral history, you will tend to lose it. And so, uh, this really is is a larger oral historical project that I'm definitely excited, and I think it will um, increase the awareness of the the great history of the city of Tallahassee that has not necessarily been documented prior to this. Yeah, well, you talked about that first-person impact of discussing history from those who have lived through it and who can make those connections. Maisha, that has kind of been your stock in trade for so long. And before we started today, we were talking about a you know, another um, resident of, of Frenchtown, Annie Roberts, who was just a, mm. a bulwark of the community for so many years, along with, you know, Alexis Roberts McMillan, a whole bunch of other folks here who know the history of the community yes, and, indeed. you know, have been talking about it in the context of this project. You're too. right. Um, Anne Roberts not only is a resident of the Frenchtown area, but she also was a historian and wrote many of the stories about the families who lived in the Frenchtown community. So we really honor her and miss her tremendously. Surprising that uh, she left us so early. But I, um, I've taken a lot of, of my notes from Ann Roberts because she is a stellar woman. She was anyway. Uh, great daughter, Lisa, still trying to go in her pathway. So I appreciate her, her effort that she's contributed to the community. Well, you contributed to not only through the uh, Revitalization Council of, of Greater Frenchtown, but also seeing the changes over the years just in the past 25, the entire landscape of that mm. community mm-hmm. has been totally rearranged. It's like the tectonic plates tore apart and then came back together in a totally different configuration there. Totally different. Yeah, a lot of changes <laughs> down there. Um, but, but you also talk about some of the things that were going on, like the community garden there on, on Dunn Street. And you you gave our, our Rob Diaz de Viegas a, a wonderful walking tour that just it 
you know, you go along for the ride or, or for the stroll, actually, <laughs> yes. as you're showing him there. And that that was sort of something that you've been pushing in the community. For too. years, we've always liked this idea of growing good food, healthy and affordable food that's available in the community, starting out with the Dunn Street Project then moving on to the Dent Street side where we're currently located. Our whole goal was to really get young people engaged in gardening. As a child myself, I had plenty of gardens around and lots of fruit trees. And when um, we had to get food, we just went to the garden, did what we needed to do. And so trying to convey that importance to, ch- to children to say how you can grow your own food and stay healthy in your community. Grow your own collard greens. You know, your mama doesn't have to go to the grocery store. <laughs> you can provide that for your family and how easy it is to do so. We started that garden back in 2010, and we're just so proud of it that it's continuing on um, with the cohorts of young people coming through, those who are in elementary school, high school, college even, and even beyond. Those are coming back uh, to participate in what they've learned early on and have gone on to some great careers over the past uh, 10, 15 years. And what is old is new again because we remember when those little gardens were everywhere. They were. On, on, as you say, the other side of the tracks, whether it was down here in the South City area or in Frenchtown, and uh, people did their own food and you but you also had little stores on on each corner sure. of the block it seemed and uh, Dr. Oliver that was something else that that struck me that in going forward sometimes you know you have to go back and we've seen that in the community here too haven't we Absolutely um I just I would be remiss if I don't uh just hearing Dr. Ellis convey um the importance of the oral histories Um, I have to give a shout out here to my own major professor, Dr. Maxine Jones, over at Florida State. When I was working on my dissertation to to get my own doctorate and uh, had pitched this uh, proposal to essentially do an an oral history uh, based on the elders of the community that I grew up in. Uh, I'm a relative homegirl, having grown up just 45 miles east of here down in Madison County, Florida. And there were some amongst my committee that were a little less enthusiastic about the idea than others. But Dr. Jones said something to me that has always stuck. And she said, if we don't tell our stories, who will? Mm -hmm. And so that has always just sort of stuck with me, even though, you know, here we are a decade later. It occurred to me, Tom, over the pandemic, that I'm the first person in my family to have gone through an entirely desegregated school experience. Mm. The next closest uh, relative to me age-wise, even she did not experience desegregation until her seventh grade year of school. So she started in a segregated system, and then it um, rolled over to a desegregated system. So having started elementary school in Madison County in 1978, I don't think of myself as being that old. So now trying to convey that, hey, these events aren't that far removed from our past to students that I currently teach at TCC. You're, you know, you're looking at somebody who is just a generation removed from things that they're reading in their history books. But the oral history gives us that um, dimension and that perspective that they won't get from their history books. And that's why I myself am, am just, you know, very respectful uh, of that. We are, we're starting to lose the generation of freedom fighters mm-hmm. from the civil rights era. And it's so important 
that their experiences get documented and are documented for others to learn from. Talking about that documentation as uh, part and parcel of this podcast series that we will unleash from WFSU.org this coming Thursday. Not so black and white. We have an all-star panel of folks to talk about that. And we also would love to hear from you, 850-414-1234. Hop on the line and give us a call, and we'll be right back. on this special edition of Perspectives, kind of the uh, the Tuesday alternative reality uh, version here as we uh, give you a little bit of a preview of our podcast series that will be coming up starting this Thursday, Not So Black and White. We have Dr. Reginald Ellis and uh, Dr. Andrea Oliver, and we also have Maisha Mitchell and Talithia Edwards with us. And speaking of Talithia, uh, let's get you here in the conversation, Talithia. I guess... How do you see this whole kind of, I don't know, racial tsunami that we've had or a soup in Tallahassee, if you will? You know, tsunamis kind of, you know, get things all, uh, you know, jumping up and down, too. But it seemed as though we were headed in one direction at one point in in our history, back around, as Dr. Oliver said, the, the civil rights era, 1964, 65, and then things kind of went the crap in 68, as we all know. But we seem to be, in many ways, drawing further apart now than we were back then. What do you think happened? Right. What do I think happened? I am really on the younger spectrum of this, right? I'm the partaker of all of this history as I as I hear it from the elders and, you know, my own family who's experienced it. But as a leader here in the town, living in a historically African-American community, um, it is disheartening to see how separate things are. I remember kind of when I realized how separate things were. It's one thing to live in a black neighborhood. It's a whole other thing when you begin to um, put your children in the schools and you see how separate the schools are, how the resources are distributed, um, how enrichment is provided. And so as I watch over the last couple of years, let's talk maybe a year or two pre-pandemic and into the pandemic when we saw George Floyd um, murdered, you know, right in front of our eyes. I saw this city in a way I had never saw it before, right, erupt in a way that people begin to show their true colors. And I'm like, whoa, I thought this was something of the past. This was something I read about, right, um, because— I haven't necessarily experienced it up close, right? But that was at the moment that I realized I need to open my eyes. Um, in community, we were experiencing some of the disparities and disinvestment and different things like that. You think those are structural things. Those are systematic governmental things, right, that you got to advocate for. But when you begin to see the attitudes of people, right, and what people say, oh, you live over there, or I'm not going over there, right, or I've never been over there, or nothing happens over there, those kind of things— like over there what do you mean you know um just just really having that come full front and i'm raising the next generation right who seems to be even more removed than my generation right from the freedom fighters and the history and, and the fight that happened we've seen a lot of us get on the front line in march uh, when george floyd died but i think the true up close relationship with the pain and the struggle and all of that is what we've taken in as intellects, right? Not as um, 
on the front lines. And we're experiencing that now and learning how to navigate that. How do I navigate with all of the resources and technology and relationships and things I've been told that life is better for me? But now, my generation, when um, we're seeing this regression and this polarization of of our communities. I could talk about the nation, but let's talk about at home, just ourselves here, um, you know, in Tallahassee. And it's just something we got to keep working through, but it is surely, surely difficult to do. I don't think I have heard the two-word phrase, those people, Mm. used as often as I have in the past just five or six years. It's the resurgence of this divisiveness whether it is racial or political or, I don't know, a different neighborhood outside of your own little comfort zone. But has that always been there, do you think, Dr. Ellis, and just circumstances caused it to erupt uh, in our faces? You know, I, um, I'm actually teaching a nature of history right now, and it, it, it's really this idea of how historians do history. And one of the things that I have been telling those senior-level students who are about to prepare to go off into the world and teach history and not um, this, let me stay on track, but to teach history, right? And and so one of the things that I remind my students is that history doesn't repeat itself, but it does rhyme. And so to answer your question directly, um, yeah, this isn't new, right? And so since, uh, you know, 1776, there has been this concept of the other rise and other rising people. And, and so we see that, that there has consistently been a thread and this idea of American democracy of, of when, when certain groups of people are included uh, in this idea of what we consider uh, democracy. Uh, there's uh, other groups of people who uh, this fear boils up within them that they feel that something is being taken away from them. And when that happens, you see this over and over and over again. So it doesn't repeat itself in the same way, right? But that it does look very, very similar. And so um, and, and from a historical perspective, it's very similar perhaps to the, um, you know, the 1950s through the 60s, or perhaps some of this, some of this from what we are seeing from a political rhetoric, from a social social violence perspective, we've seen this in the nadir. We've seen this during Reconstruction even, right? When you teach the history of Reconstruction, people feel that, oh, well, Reconstruction was the first time black people uh, made gains, but at the same time, the Ku Klux Klan was rising, right? And while in that period of time, black people made great gains, but shortly thereafter, they made great losses. And so it does not repeat itself, but it does feel very similar. It does feel very uh, as though we have lived this before, and it's almost... And it's not predictive of what's going to come, but, um, you know, when, for example, about 8 to 10, 15 years ago, some historians were saying this is the third reconstruction. Mm -hmm. And if that was the case, we knew from a rhyming perspective what was going to happen. And so uh, many historians not necessarily were surprised about where we are now. I think where they are surprised at how far it has gone as it relates to social violence, as it relates to our politicians on all sides, 
Um, and so what we are looking for in the nation, from my assessment, is where are our leaders? Right? Who is going to be, if you, uh, if you study biography, who's, where's the Winston Churchill? Where's the Nelson Mandela? Where's the, the leaders that have the ability to take this concept and this idea, because this American experience, and recenter it to where everyone is included. And that's the beauty of, from my assessment as a historian, because I tell my students this all the time, what are our grandchildren and great-grandchildren going to say about our generation? We often talk about, when I was growing up, about King. My daughter won't know, I hope, about King, because she'll be talking about somebody in our generation that did what King did. And you bring up another good point, though, that as we look at the political landscape, there have been some pretty seismic changes there as well. Go back about 40 years or so, and here in the political makeup of this community, and I remember coming down from, you know, the enlightened, the progressive Northeast, to Tallahassee, Florida, where I found on the city commission a gentleman by the name of James Ford. Mm -hmm. And my first impression was, what a what a liberal community Tallahassee must be. There is an African-American on their city commission. And back home, everyone was just as white as could possibly be. So, I, you know, I got the impression that maybe this was a more inclusive and diverse community than perhaps uh, we might first think. Fast forward to today, you have uh, black folks on every single board and commission and other political entity here in, in this town. And yet, as you said, Talithia, there's been regression. Right. So I, let me ask you, Mahisha, are, can those two go together? Oh, yeah, they go together, just like salt and pepper. It's the thing about, you know, seeing this from another perspective as a child when people say, wouldn't you realize that you were black? <laughs> you know, those type of questions. Well, when I was nine, I used to have a, a, good, a good friend who was a white girl. And the reason we became friends is because my auntie used to work for one of the local doctors who was white. And so oftentimes we developed these relationships. But as I turned, moving into my 10th year, those relationships stopped. And we could not have um, that relationship anymore. So that I learned early on that I had a place, you know, so it's been going on. And then as I moved forward as a young adult and with the women's movement, joining that movement thinking we were talking about all women, and really to my stock surprise, there was women stay in your place. It's particularly when you start talking about being engaged with the black men, that wasn't going to happen if you want to be part of the movement. And so over the years, I've watched this type of um, occurrence. So it, they do. They come together black and white, just like that. Good side and a bad side, you know, a side that probably to me has been uh, the worst now that I've ever seen. Because when you get to a point in your life where you're over 70 and you've watched all this happen, you recognize that you can't say certain words, you know, because it speaks to truth. And whenever you try to speak truth, it's oftentimes shut down. And uh, in a political system where, in which we live in Florida, it's pretty tough. To speak truth. Yeah, but, but it's not only politics and race. It is also perhaps uh, a little bit of, uh, of power mixed in with that. Mm -hmm. And 
uh, I, I forget, and uh, Andrea Oliver, you're the historian <laughs> here, who, who said the rich and the powerful will always have a leg up. What else is new? Is, is that part of it as well, as, as much as race and gender and all these other things? It absolutely is a part of the dynamic. And I think one of the beautiful things that I get to do in my work uh, at the community college level where we're called upon to our, the balance of our work is, is teaching more so than the, in the research department um, and teaching, you know, the survey level American history classes. So for many students, it's either their first history class uh, or their first history class in a very long time uh, or certainly the first history class where they're hearing certain things being presented in certain contexts. And one of the things that, as I was listening to Dr. Ellis point out, uh, that history doesn't necessarily repeat itself, but it rhymes. One common refrain, though, is how the status quo, the powerful, has always leveraged division to their political advantage. That goes all the way back. I tell everybody if more Americans understood what happened in an incident known as Bacon's Rebellion from the very beginning of this country's founding, when you had the real promise of an interracial movement built around common economic interests, and we see this over time, when you have common economic and social concerns that people are coalescing around, race becomes secondary until the status quo decides to make it primary. And then once the racial dynamic is introduced or interjected or people are reminded of these racial dynamics, you're no longer a working class person who actually has more in common with your darker hued brother or sister in the case of the women's rights movement. You actually have more in common than you have things that are not in common but for that racial dynamic. And there are powerful interests, to your point about power, that um, are, are really vested in ensuring that we stay divided. So is, is then, maybe Talithia, again, since you, you, uh, you are the, shall we say, uh, um, let's see, the lower demographic in the, uh, in the panel, okay? As you said before. Is the hope then with with a new generation that comes and says, this is just so, you know, this is so 1950. What are you talking about? You know, we all listen to the same music. We hang out with the same people, go to the same schools and all that. And we're, we're going to put that aside and just live together. Right. I think part of that it was an illusion. Right. Again, um, I love what I heard Dr. Ellis say um, is that he's hoping that in this generation— the leaders will rise up, right? And so I wanna I wanna talk a little bit about that and that I feel that same way and what the dynamics are in that. Um I started back going to research and read on the leaders of our past and what they did. And I picked up why we can't wait again. And I read it long time ago. And then reading it today, I'm like, oh my God, my eyes are so open. And what I realized is that the illusion of power that some of us feel, right, social capital, human capital that we exercise in gives us this feeling of privilege and place 
that isn't real, right? And it really requires us to strip that off and to really realize what is my place? How do I use, for real, use my social capital, my human capital, um, the emotion I'm feeling like I'm almost 40 in the next seven weeks. And so I've been allowing myself to feel things. Um, typically, we just do, right? Get up and act. Something has to happen. I grew up in Miami. I learned that really early. But feeling what this feels like and what does that provoke? to happen. And I and I think a lot of my generation is feeling a lot of things, but don't necessarily know the answers. I think the answers lie in the rhyme of what's hap- what's you know happened before that is not the same. And um also we, dynamic of power. I know I'm switching around because I got a lot of thoughts in my head. Um that idea of destroying the establishment and not leaning on the wisdom of the elders because there is a blueprint. Honestly, we may have um, different ways to interpret that and to execute that so that we see leaders in our community rise. But I do believe that there are some patterns that were successful patterns that we need to ask more questions, you know, innovate and, um, and do things. And so that's why I think it is really complex what I said because I'm thinking about it on so many dynamics. We're wanting these freedoms for our children, right? We're realizing the realities that is. I'm raising three teenage boys right now that I'm afraid when they're five minutes late coming in my house where I thought when I gave birth to my oldest 17 years ago, I don't have to worry about that. And that's not true. So we're confronting these um ideas and truths we thought we had that are not real, right? And now having to navigate and um into and, and to develop new paradigms. And that is a process for us. But I think it's also a hard confronting that needs to happen um with those who we still have left. We are losing our elders, the the people who I think know how to get us somewhere and we're not asking the questions and, and, and I think that that is a gonna be a detriment. That those wisdom voices right. that are out there. And as I think everyone pointed out, and the reason that we got involved in the podcast, so much of this remains oral history. And though there are an increasing amount of, you know, scholarly treatises and even, you know, very powerful novels that contain a lot of that wisdom, it's kind of still much of it unsaid. If I, if I may interject um, a, a, a hint and a tone of optimism, <laughs> if I may, sure. uh, as, as the teacher of members of Gen Z and as the parent of, of Gen Z uh, folk, uh, one thing that your generation, and I will say millennials on down, uh, so that would, in, that would be members of Generation Z, like your son, my children, college students, uh, is they do have social media. I, I don't think we're going to necessarily see the the kind of, you know, sort of unitary one person leadership that you saw in eras past because everybody's got the power to change, to document, to share, to disseminate with a with a tool that they can hold in one hand. They can simultaneously simultaneously do all those things. Um, and you do see it, TikTok influencers, uh, Instagram. Of course, you do have to be careful because, you know, there, there is the, 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 the authenticity and the validity of the information that does get shared. But let's just, let's just interrupt that for a second and catch up on that on the other side of the break right here on Perspectives from WFSU Public Media. Don't go away. 
A special perspectives in the run-up to this week's release of the first of a series of extended podcasts about racial divisions and also reconciliations right here within our own community of Tallahassee, where the entire news team got involved with this and put together just a magnum opus of looking at this issue from many, many different uh, perspectives and <laughs> thus the name of the show, but also thus the uh, group that we have gathered around this table here to talk about that. And Dr. Andrea Oliver of Tallahassee Community College, you were talking about now the collective, whereas before racial discrimination and and just outright blatant inequality was kind of in the shadows. And now with those little devices that we all stick in our back pocket, that is out in the open and can be shared with literally millions of people in a heartbeat. Does That's that correct. change everything? I don't know that it changes everything, but it certainly interjects a, a, a different dynamic. Um, were it not for the video taken by a 17-year-old passerby, would we have known about George Floyd? Would it would it have precipitated into the convictions that it ultimately, you know, did uh, result in uh, and from those convictions, hopefully broader uh, changes can occur, systemic changes that that were long, you know, a long time in the making and a long time much needed. Well, Do uh, Dr. Ellis, you talked about Emmett Till just a second ago, that uh, program that was on. Would that have changed everything if during the, the Freedom Riders and the fight for civil rights back in the late 50s and throughout the 60s, if we had had cell phones to document a lot of the things that had been rumored and also been able to be debunked by the power structure? Yeah, we did have a new technology, which was the television. And so when these individuals were coming in with cameras, right, and when they saw, uh, you know, Bull Connor and all of these, you know, southern white supremacists literally beating kids, that changed Midwesterners. That changed individuals in the West because it was a southern problem until we saw how people were being brutalized. And so I think, you know, to Dr. Oliver's point, with new inventions and new technology, the game changes. But in some ways, and according to Leon Litwack, it remains the same. You know, history changes. A lot has changed. A lot has remained the same. So I think what's going to happen, from my assessment, is eventually we, the human race, will catch up to social media. And eventually we, the human race, will figure out how best to use social media to make, uh, to use it as a tool and not be used as a tool by that, right? And so when you look at the leaders of the 50s and the 60s, for example, uh, the ladies of Birmingham and how they were very unique and strategic about how they used the media and how they used the television. Yes, come down, watch us march, and watch what they do to us. Look at the images of Rosa Parks refusing to get up. If, it, if me telling you, uh, uh, about her refusing to get up. I can't paint the picture like you watching her sit and how powerful that is, right? And so I think that, you know, the generation before us used television. This generation is using social media. And so, you know, there has never been the person that says, hey, I'm the leader. The people will decide who the leader is. And so I, I think that that's where that it will eventually come from. Right? And so right now we have, unfortunately, the Breonna Taylors and the Maude Arberries and George Floyd who have become martyrs of the movement, of the 21st century movement. But I, I still feel that there 
in this generation, out of this new social media era, will emerge a leader um, that will figure out how to use this technology in the same way our grandparents and great-grandparents figured out how to use that new technology. I just, and I'm going to be quiet, um, just paying attention to the uh, funeral of Queen Elizabeth II, and they said that she was the first queen in the history of that monarchy that came of age with television and how she used television to transform the vision and the idea of what a monarchy could be. And I think we did the same thing in the United States with the civil rights movement. And I think that from my assessment, we are seeing that uh, the impact of social media on black colleges, for example, and how you just look at the microcosm, what uh, Deion Sanders is doing at Jackson State just by using Instagram and Twitter to raise the profile of that. And so I think you can see the same thing. I think eventually you will see the same thing as it relates to uh, moving the needle on this idea of social justice and things of that nature. I think, if I can add a little bit, um, the social media is definitely a game changer, but I think strategy, you, you started to touch on it, Dr. Ellis, strategy is important, right? We live in a generation who's individualistic in convictions and thinking. And so I think the collectivism, right, that it is all of us, right, this is a united struggle, that strategy has to go with that. That is that is the piece that I think I keep hearing um, Dr. Ellis go to when he talks about the, the leader that rise up, that we learn how, which strategy to take all of this that we have at our hands, the convictions and the frustration and the history that we come from, the technolo technological tools and all of that, and bring us together. Because while we do have social media, we are still clustered, very siloed in how we think, who we identify with, who uses the hashtags I'm using, right? It's not this universal kind of movement where someone has been identified as the universal leader of this particular time to move us to the next space and I I don't know who that is I hope I'm hoping to to um to figure that out maybe that person is right now in eighth grade somewhere I don't know but um it requires more and more conversation it requires us having these deep conversations I know specifically I've been having conversations with my peers and how we've sheltered our children and so now having to take this whole wool off their eyes, raising them in this bubble because, you know, we don't want them to experience what we experienced. And listen, this is life. This is what they're going to have to experience and navigate through and uh, just feeling like you got to do that really quickly, you know. And so that is a piece of it is we're going to use the tools, but we also need strategy. When I, I keep going back to Fannie Lou Hamer, Dr. King, and all of them, they were strategic. They had class meetings, like classes, come to Freedom School and learn about these particular ways we're going to do this. The the Birmingham incident, they planned for months before, you know, we got to what we know now. It's the letter from the Birmingham jail and the whole thing that happened. It was strategic. And we're literally going to have to be able to put strategy to the technological tools we have to see us to a new space. And, and to break that down, and Maisha Mitchell to do what you do every day, which is to get out there and interface with people across, you know, vast chasms mm -hmm. of politics and race and everything else. And, okay, 
we may disagree on 90 percent of this stuff. But what is the 10 percent we can agree on? And let's work our way out from there. Yeah, and that's so critical, everything you're talking about, particularly when you talk about Dr. King, and that is my idol. (laughs) I've always thought about his work around love, the beloved community, because that, to me, is the fundamental piece that we are missing. Um, There is so much tension among us, but when you get to know an individual person, one-on-one, that tension can be relaxed so much more. We don't necessarily practice as much of that as we used to. As a younger person growing up in Tallahassee, Tallahassee had a different feel. It did not feel as tensed and uh, angry as we are now. It was more respected of your place. You know, you black, white, but you have a space and I have a space and we don't necessarily have to get along together, but we have to respect each other. That is the fundamental part that's missing now. I don't see that happening with many of our young people. Even some of the younger people are discouraged Guarding the thought that um, the elders matter. And that goes way beyond the principles and values that we've held for years in my life, you know, that I've watched people say, respect your elders, listen to the wisdom, do not forget where you come from, all these types of things that we've been told. And yet we find ourselves in a situation where much of that is moving to a whole another level. How do we change that? Interactions? collaborations, partnerships, being truthful, strategic, all of the things that you are talking about today really are critical if we want to move forward in a beloved community. You know, that is an illusion, as you say, big time for me. You know, I had this big dream that, you know, that is practical and the way that we uh, address each other, that we can begin to teach that. You know, how you get people to get to that understanding that it is a fundamental aspect of our being able to live together as one. And to be able to listen to each other and and predicate that understanding on, again, communication. Yes. You know, where are you coming from? What is is life like for For you? you. Exactly. Yeah. Love of others start with love of self. Mm -hmm. Love of self starts with knowledge of self. And that goes back to education. Um, you know, and that to kind of maybe bring it back to the heart of some of these topics that the podcast will deal with. Um, we really have to look at our educational system and, and not just from the perspective of the equity and, and uh, distribution of resources, while those things certainly matter. I'm interested in what's being taught, who's doing the teaching. Um, I'm also interested in, in our young people Young people who look like me, quite frankly, um, having a a deeper and abiding respect for each other. Mm -hmm. You have that respect that starts there. Then you can respect uh, people uh, like Miss Maisha. If you're going to, you know, you talk about respect uh, and that respect emanates outward. I think just in general, there was this general, more respectful Mm -hmm. uh, atmosphere that you can say is just true, that that cross racial lines and class lines. And for everything that we've said about the power of technology and the beneficial ways that it can be harnessed, I'm going to also blame technology for that one, too. Um, uh, You know, the the mass media culture is just one in general that really doesn't um, inspire uh, an atmosphere of respect. It's almost as if the more angry you are, the more you can get people to, you know, like your post or 
you know, view your show or listen to your, your podcast. So maybe we start there. I don't know. <laughs> okay. What, what do you think, Dr. E? What? No, I just just listening back at the entire conversation, I'm going back to my earlier statement about how history doesn't repeat itself. It rhymes. And I, th- and I think that when we go back to the even look at and, and consider the civil rights movement, the elders then felt that the younger people weren't listening and paying attention to them. You all need to slow down, right? This is eventually going to come. And the younger people were saying, no, we want our change now. And so when we go back to the summer of social justice in 2020, it was the same thing, right? You you held, you heard elders in the community say, hey, you all don't need to be out in the streets like that. It, it's a process. It's a, it's a way we do things. It's how we do things. And the younger people were saying, and what we should take note of is that when I say the younger people, I think if you look at it across America, it was a biracial younger mm-hmm. people movement, right? It wasn't just a black person movement. I think going back to the social media, going back to the television, yeah, we, we were all forced to be home to watch that. But I think everybody in America was impacted by watching that lynching, right? And that's what it was. And we, we were all impacted in a way, and I think generationally we all wanted it handled differently, right? And so, But I think, again, that is just who we are as human nature. As we get older, we look at things, movement different, right? Younger people are ready to move. Middle-aged people are more nuanced in their movement, and, you know, our seasoned, more seasoned people are really more tactful doesn't mean they don't want to move it's just different and so just hearing these hearing these conversations it, it i mean you can read documents and it's the same thing right, right. it's the same when when the young 28 year old king goes to Birmingham that people are saying you're moving too fast right and so it's just it's, it's really it's, it's not the exact same thing it's just rhyming again yeah and that's Stokely Carmichael saying come on what's what's wrong with you let's go <laughs> exactly yeah. exactly. exactly. and so we're having this generational conversation around this table right, right. <laughs> <laughs> right. and I think we got bright spots happening in Tallahassee I know we, we've talked about a lot of things that are realities for us but um, I'm participating in the 100 coffees that Village Square is doing, and I've had some amazing encounters, um, intergenerational encounters, interracial encounters. You know, I've cried, I've laughed, I've celebrated, right? I've recognized leadership in young people that don't know their leaders yet, and it's been an amazing experience to take off the weight of what we're experiencing mm-hmm. here in Tallahassee mm-hmm. and to leave the tension at the door and to sit down and to gain perspective from someone who is not in your everyday sphere of influence or, you know, that you would even probably stop to talk to if you brushed each other in the mall, right? And and these are the kind of conversations, I think, that are also necessary to build relationship mm-hmm. um, in community as well. And so, um, you know, so just plug here for Village Square on that one. This has been a great experience to, to meet with individuals and just talk. I just had a conversation yesterday, as a matter of fact, with the new executive director of the Village Square, and we talked about the kind of revamp of that organization, getting back to its roots. And here's some practical ways of sitting down with people that normally you might not even spit at. Mm. 
and coming to at least some sort of understanding yes. and communication. Yeah, and hey, let's mm-hmm. let's see if there is any common ground that we can bounce off of. So we'll talk common about ground. that some more, folks. Just a few moments remaining. My gosh, we could go on for the for the rest of the day. But let's start with you, Dr. Reginald Ellis. Any final thoughts on not just the podcast, but just the conversation in general before we wrap it up? Per usual, I think that this is a conversation that we can need to consistently have, not just a one-off. And so I'm excited uh, to to hear the podcast, and I hope that uh, moving forward we can have more programming like this, um, not just on WFSU, but throughout the community. Well, I know we're also going to make this uh, available, certainly through the magic of that uh, that Internet thing that we've talked so much about here today to a much larger audience, potentially even international. Aisha Mitchell, any <laughs> Yeah, listen, you? I love Tallahassee. This is my space. You know, I've lived other places around the country, but uh, I think, you know, here this space brings a lot of people together, folks who don't know each other, and I keep thinking about what it looks like in the future. We will keep your optimism ever in front of our eyes as a, uh, a touchstone, if you will, by Isha. Dr. Andrea Oliver. Ms. Mitchell keeps me encouraged. She gives me hope as somebody who has lived the life that she's led and has seen the things that she's seen. And it's that hope that I maintain for the children that I have and the students that I teach. Um, you got to keep that hope and you have to mm. keep that optimism because if you don't without it, you would give up mm. and we can't do that. All righty. Well, we're not going to give up on Talitha Edwards and she has the next generation right with her right now. <laughs> All right. So I'm just, you know, really excited about this conversation that we've had today. You know, it puts a, a bit of fresh air under my wings. And so just looking forward to you know, what's next? Okay, and I can't wait to see what's next for that young guy yours that you got here today. <laughs> Folks, thank you for joining us on this special edition of Perspectives produced by WFSU Public Media. In Tallahassee, Taylor Cox and Lido Rawls back in the board. Kim Kelling, our executive producer, and I'm Tom Flanagan. Next month, WFSU Public Media, in conjunction with the League of Women Voters of Tallahassee and the Tallahassee Democrat, will resume our series of local candidate forums in advance of the November general election, as we did in the primary. We'll be uh, live streaming those and the audio portions delayed broadcast over WFSU-FM. We hope you'll join us for those on Monday, October 10th, as we start that series right here on WFSU Public Media. And don't forget the podcast series, Not So Black and White, kicks off this coming Thursday. Thank you for joining us today. We'll talk again soon.